I want to ask you to turn to James chapter 1. My message is really going to focus just on one phrase in verse 17, but in a few minutes I'm going to read two verses. Almost exactly one month ago, we experienced fall equinox of 2021. Basically, that is the day, it actually happens twice a year, spring equinox and fall equinox. It's the day where most places on earth experience equal amount of daylight and nighttime in a single day. So around September 21st this year, it's actually right in the middle of that day, we hit the equinox and it meant that basically we, along with most other people on earth, had 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. And now we're in that three-month period called fall, where basically between now and Christmas, or exactly December 21st, every day daylight gets shorter by two minutes. And darkness gets longer by two minutes. Until we get to around Christmas time, when rather than having 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, we will experience nine hours of daylight and 15 hours of darkness. This is my least favorite time of the year. (laughs) I love the fall time. But just knowing that every day the darkness is getting longer until we get into the heart of winter and we've got to bundle up under the snowfall that's coming in January and February. It's a a tough time of year. The daylight is constantly changing. That is remarkable because the sunshine, the, the rising of the sun, the experience of the sun is the most constant and rhythmic thing that we know on planet earth it's why we're alive it's why life can be sustained on the planet because the sun is so regular and rhythmic and yet when you think about it as constant as the sun is our experience of it is constantly changing it has been said that the one thing that's constant in the world is change. And that is true for everything in creation. It is not true of the Creator. Let's read James 1 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's a reference to the gospel message, the message about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. When they heard the gospel, they were born again by the Father's own will so that they would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James The one who's writing this is a younger half-brother of Jesus. 
He's one of Joseph and Mary's sons. After Joseph and Mary got married, after Mary gave birth miraculously to Jesus. James did not become a follower of his older half-brother immediately. In fact, there are two occasions in the gospel where James, along with his other half-brothers, mocks Jesus. They don't think very highly of him. They think he's basically a, a deluded individual. But that all changed when James, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, witnessed his brother risen from the dead. James saw Jesus alive from the dead, and he became a follower of his older half-brother. Incredible. James would eventually become one of the pastors in the church in Jerusalem, which in the years right after the resurrection of Jesus, were like 5,000 people in that congregation. James would not only become one of the leaders, he would become the leader of the leaders of that church. And about a decade after Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the formation of this congregation in Jerusalem, persecution began to fall hard on the Christians throughout the Roman Empire, especially the Christians in Jerusalem. It was always there. It became awful about a decade later. You can read about it in Acts. Simply put, many of the believers in Jerusalem lost everything. When persecution fell, they were abandoned by their community. They were abandoned by their family. They lost their jobs. They lost their houses. They had to flee to other territories throughout the Roman Empire and seek for refuge in whoever would take them in, in the homes of whoever would take them in. And about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus and the formation of this massive congregation, James pens this letter to the persecuted Christians who've fled Jerusalem and they're living, really scraping for their existence a long way from home. They've lost their property. They've lost their security. They've lost their dignity and respect. These are persecuted Christians. And the most shocking thing about this letter is that James tells them to be happy. Constantly, he tells them to be joyful. He begins immediately in verse 2. Consider your trials joy. And he basically says, be happy because God's in control of your circumstances. And be happy that God is going to give you the strength that you don't think you're going to have to love other people. Even though you're in excruciating pain, God's going to give you strength to love other people. And he says, you need to be happy that no one can take away your worth before God. And no one can take away your promised inheritance. Even though right now you might be poor, you are rich. You are rich in God's sight. He highly values you and he's going to pour out his riches on you for the rest of eternity. Consider that to be joy. So he's talking to people who are horribly persecuted, and he's saying, be filled with joy. In the two verses we read, it's really interesting. James is actually counseling these suffering believers to think rightly about God. He knows that their tendency in the midst of their trials, they've lost everything, they're being persecuted, they're being hated. He knows that their tendency is to get bitter at God. 
To basically think, God, you're being cruel to me. Why are you doing all this? If you loved me, you wouldn't let such bad things happen to me. James knows exactly the tendency of believers who are suffering toward God. We're tempted to doubt him, to get suspicious of him. God, you must not be all that good. And what he writes here, using that description, the father of lights, is teaching us that God is always and only good. James is teaching us that when we look up at the lights, the sun, moon, and stars, every time we look up at the lights, we should think that this universe has an almighty creator who is sovereign over all, who's unchanging in his pure goodness, who's utterly beyond our ability to comprehend, and who is my father through the gospel. I'm going to say that one more time. This is the essence of my message. I'm going to unpack it for a few minutes, but we're going to come right back to this. Every time you look at the lights, the sun, moon, and stars, you should think the universe has an almighty creator who is sovereign over all. He's unchanging in pure goodness. He's utterly beyond my ability to comprehend. And he is my father through the gospel. Every time you look up at the lights, you should think the universe has an almighty creator who's sovereign over all. He is unchanging in pure goodness. He's utterly beyond my ability to comprehend. And he's my father through the gospel. You see... That phrase, the father of lights, in this little precious sentence is packed with meaning, meaning that should change our lives. So I want to zero in on a couple of these statements I just made and say every single time you look up at the lights, the sun, moon, and stars, you should be taught and reminded about God. And there are really six things you should be taught about God or reminded about God. The first is God's mighty power as creator. Every time you look at the sun, moon, and stars, you should think about God's mighty power as creator. He is the father of those lights. He made them. Psalm 19.1 says, Everything in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's the work of his hands. Psalm 33.6 says, He made it all by his word. Now just step back for a minute and think about this. God made our son. Did you know that our son is actually considered an average-sized star? It's just average. Now you could fit a million earths in it, but it's just an average star. Some stars are actually a thousand times larger than our sun. And our sun, it's just an average star in the Milky Way, which has 100 billion stars, and is one of, scientists guess, between 2 trillion galaxies, and maybe in the last two years they've suggested it could be 10 trillion galaxies. just an average star. It's 
kind of on the smaller side when you compare it to the stars that are a thousand times bigger. And it's just one of trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. Simply put, when you look at the massive lights in the sky above, you should say, God is a great creator. He is immense in his greatness. Secondly, when you look at the sun, moon, and stars, you should be taught and reminded of God's sovereignty. The sun, moon, and stars are above us. How far above? Well, this morning, I was in the car on my way to school, and my son is asking me about distances. Dad, how long would it take to get to Detroit? I said, oh, about three hours. How long would it take to get to Denver? I said, oh, about 20 hours. He said, how long would it take to get to Oakland? It's like, oh boy, that's a lot longer, maybe 40 hours. How many days is that? And he goes on. He likes these kinds of details and information. If you got in a car, started going 60 miles an hour, it would take you five and a half months to drive to the moon. That's how far above it is. So you get in a car right now, put the pedal to the metal, start going 60 miles an hour. You don't sleep at all. You'll be there sometime in March to the moon. How long would it take to drive to the sun at that rate? 176 years. That's how far above the sun is. The next nearest star is Proxima Centauri. Going at a rate of 60 miles per hour to get to the next nearest star. 47 million years. 47 million years to get to star number two. Now James here says... God's goodness is coming down from above. And what he's stressing when he focuses on the aboveness of God is God's sovereignty. That God rules over all. Every single event that happens on every square inch, not only of the earth, but of the universe, is under God. He is sovereign over all of it, and you should remember it every time you look up at the lights. Third, when you look at the sun, moon, and stars, you should be reminded of God's pure goodness. When James teaches that he is the father of lights, he's compelling us to think about God's essential nature as light. God His very nature is beautiful, pure, radiant goodness. Other scriptures tell us that the God who made the lights dwells in unapproachable light. Pure light. Other scriptures tell us that God himself is light and in him is no darkness at all. Most people would agree that the sun is a pretty bright light. It is a massive hydrogen-to-helium reactor. 
the surface temperature on the sun is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And yet, even the sun has dark spots. Did you know that our sun is not nearly one of the hottest stars? It's considered a yellow star, which is hotter than the cooler red stars, but it's only about a quarter of the temperature of the much hotter blue stars. Blue stars can exceed 40,000 degrees Fahrenheit on their surfaces. When you see the light of the sun, which is wonderful for those of us in Northeast Ohio, when you see the light of the sun, you should always think, God is purer, more brilliant, more unapproachable than that blinding sunlight that I can not stare at directly for very long. God is purer. He is brighter. He's more beautiful. As one engineer who worked on the Envisat put it, when we consider the brightness of the sun, we can be reminded that God's brightness is even more brilliant. When we consider, he said, the the beauty and the colors and the patterns in the universe, we can be reminded that God is even more beautiful. The sun and stars show us that God is a glorious God who's worthy of our praise. So we've considered three truths of which we should be reminded about God every time we see the sun, moon, and stars. His mighty power, his sovereignty over all, and his pure goodness. Fourth, Fourth and fifth, I should say, are they might be two new words. They're kind of rhyming. I want to teach you what they mean if you don't know what they mean. But fourth is God's immutability. And fifth is his inscrutability. God's immutability, it means he never changes. James describes God as the father of lights, the one with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So Christians... He's teaching us that our God is unchanging. He's immutable. That quality is essential to God's nature. He is unchanging in every facet of his being. He's unchanging in his love, unchanging in his goodness, unchanging in his truthfulness, unchanging in his justice. God doesn't change. This is why we can trust every one of his promises. Because his truthfulness doesn't get stronger and weaker depending on the day. It's not like he has good days and bad days. It's not like God has days where he's just a little weaker in remembering what he said. God doesn't get weaker and he can't get stronger. He is immutable, unchanging in every facet of his character. Every time you look at the stars, you should remember, they might change. Their creator doesn't. Fifth, God's inscrutability. This means that he's impossible to fully understand. That's what inscrutable means. It means, I can't comprehend it. And for those of you who are going through really hard times in your life right now, you need this big word, inscrutable. It's what Job needed when he couldn't figure out God. God pointed him to the stars to teach Job that God is inscrutable. 
He has reasons for doing things that we may never understand or fully understand. You know that we can't fathom the number of stars in our galaxy, let alone the number of stars in the universe. I quoted earlier the uh, astronomical engineer, Stuart Burgess, his book, He Made the Stars Also, is one of my favorites. He just gave a, a simple way of accenting the, uh, the size of, of the universe and the number of stars in it. He said, do you know if, if a man could count even at the rate of one million stars per second, it would take a million years to count the stars in the universe? Do you know that you are incapable of numbering the stars? Do you remember the story of Abraham? God had made promises to him. And Abraham's like, how in the world is God going to make good on any of these promises? What did God tell him to do? He said, look up at the stars and number them if you can. (laughs) And do you know what Abraham did when he looked up at the stars and tried to number them? He trusted God. That's wise. Abraham didn't have to have all of his questions answered. God, how are you going to do what you said? When are you going to do it? Abraham had to look up at the sky, try to count the stars, and say, God, I'm just simply going to trust you. Something very similar happened to Job. Job, throughout the book, is complaining at God. Why? Why? I don't understand why you're doing all of these awful things to me. Why am I suffering? And God tells him, essentially, to look at Orion and look at Pleiades. Look at these constellations. When we are going through hardships that we do not understand, we need to consider the sun, moon, and stars. It should lead us to say, God, you're God, I'm not. It should lead us to repent of all the times we've accused God of wronging us when we don't understand the full picture. And we should acknowledge, we should really do this. In prayer, you should say with your mouth, maybe on your knees in your closet, God, you have reasons for doing things that I can't know. You're inscrutable. Number six, this is where we end. When you look up at the sun, moon, and stars... You should be reminded of God's personal love and care. I stressed this when I read verse 17 and 18, but note the connection between the two. According to verse 18, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have embraced the gospel, the Father of lights has become your Father. The word of truth, the gospel, is the message that God the Father gave his one and only Son to live perfectly like you and I never have done, and then to die in our place. He rose again, proving that he had paid for sin in full. There was nothing left to be paid. And he proved that he is Lord over sin and death. He can beat death. He ascended to heaven. He is sovereign over all. He's gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation as his followers. And he is going to return and reign as king of kings on this planet. That's the word of truth. That message is true. 
And when you hear that word of truth and you turn from being your own authority and you say, Jesus, be my Lord and be my Savior. I need you. I'm going to follow you. When you commit your life to him, the Father of lights becomes your Father. He forgives all of your sin. He promises you eternal life, inheritance in the eternal kingdom. He promises you resurrection life in a resurrection body on a world in which there's no sin, no sickness, no tears, no death. God, the Father of lights, can do that. He is creator. He is sovereign. He's greater than we can imagine. And when you get reconciled to the Father of lights through the gospel, the Father of lights is your Father. The one who made the stars not only knows the name of every star, but he knows your name. Some of you in this room have not submitted your lives to Jesus. You have not yet bowed to creation's crucified, risen, and returning king. I want you, sometime in the next few days, at nighttime, maybe you get out of the car in your driveway, and you walk into your garage, and you just look up, and you see the stars. I want you to take just a few seconds and pause and look up. And maybe you'll say something like I've said to myself on numerous occasions. Who do I think I am? Look up. Consider the Father of lights. And I urge you to turn from being your own authority. And commit yourself to being a follower of Jesus. It will not make your life easy. But you will be reconciled to the Father of lights. Life might be really hard in the short term. It will be awesome, unspeakably awesome in eternity. Many of you in here are followers of Jesus. And some of you are doubting God right now because of what he's doing in your life or in your family's life. Some of you, because of what you're going through health-wise, are cynical at God. You're thinking, God... I hear all the time, even here at church, people singing that you're good, good, good. doesn't really feel like it in my case. I urge you, sometime this week, in the evening, step out to the end of your driveway and look up. And be struck again with the reality, who do I think I am? And say, God, I'm sorry for thinking ill of you for accusing you, the maker of the Son, of having evil motives. God, I'm sorry. God, you are doing things beyond what I can fathom. And right now, in my trials, I can trust you. Confess your thoughts of God as cruel. And commit yourself to saying, God, I'm going to trust you, even though I don't understand And I may never understand what you're doing. You need to remember, every time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars, that the universe has an almighty creator who's sovereign over all. 
He's immutable, unchanging in pure goodness. He's inscrutable. He's beyond your ability to comprehend what he's doing, all he's doing. And if you've embraced Jesus, if you've submitted yourself to Jesus, the Father of lights is your Father through the gospel. Let's pray. God, I pray that this phrase, the Father of lights, would anchor the lives of every student and staff member in here for Jesus' glory and our good. Amen.